0: You there. Hey, listen, before we go any further, can I hear that can I hear that kazoo that was on just before us, please? Where are we headed? I mean, which way is the compass pointing? more importantly, which way is the, is, the, uh, is the bow of the ship pointing? You're uh, Speaking of uh, the bow of the ship, we have a note here. I see uh, things are happening. You know, the taxes are getting out of hand completely, Herbert. Uh, incidentally, would you give me that 45 in there, Herb? The, uh, the one that's, uh, please, Lee. Uh, the 45, that's right. And give me the Washington Post side. No, I think the other side is kind of great. No, the Washington Post side, if you don't mind, I'm uh, I'm feeling very uh, expansive tonight. I see where they've uh, I don't quite know how to approach this. You know, remember before I say this, I I must point out that I don't make the news. It just comes in off the machine, and uh, <laughs> you know it's like some vast it's like it's like some vast baloney creator that keeps turning out baloney, and it keeps coming out. and You wonder where you know where it's all going to end. I see where Rhode Island, you know how New York City is uh, going in, in fact, the whole state of New York is going in for legalized gambling and to make a lot of extra dough, and so on. I see uh, Rhode Island, to help it out of a financial crisis, uh, Representative Bernard C. Gladstone, a Democrat of Providence, has suggested, uh, in fact, has proposed to the state legislature a tax on, uh, <laughs> I don't quite know how to say this, Uh, how can I say, It's it's a basic function of all of animal life. And he wants to tax it at $100, or rather, $2 per act, is the way it's put. Not drinking, no, honey. Not drinking, no, no. Think deeper. What is the major preoccupation with all Danish educational films? Is it drinking? Is it eating, uh, veal cutlets? Uh Uh-uh. So they want to put a tax on it now. And the problem is how to know how to tax a guy. So they're thinking of putting meters and the whole, you know, it gets uh, quite involved. Two dollars a thing, you know. So, uh, (laughs) I'll just say that it's getting, it's getting kind of interesting. I... I I think we'd like to salute that man who's already at the beginning of the 70s has uh, created a new standard for legislators of the 1970s to live up to. Representative Bernard C. Gladstone, a Democrat of Providence, Rhode Island, gets tonight's vote for the legislator of this century. Cut that now and set the other one up. That's even more important. Yes, indeed, things are happening. And uh, tonight, uh, what did I do with my book? Did I leave even have my book in there, baby? So when that, when you get rid of that creep on the phone there, you can come over here and give me my book. And uh, while she's getting my book, I'd like to uh, I'd like to point out to those of you who missed the note in the paper that things are really moving. I'm glad to report it uh, that uh, for long this uh, corner of the little world here this little corner, has continually advocated the cause of the cockroach. You know this. We have stood four square behind the cockroach in all of his various moves so, to uh, improve his lot. I think it's one of the great minorities. Actually, probably today the cockroach is a majority, but it's one of the great unsung majorities then that just gets nothing but bad mouth press. And according to the New York Post of a couple of days ago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art now has cockroaches. A group of artists, unhappy with the administration of the museum, invaded a banquet of museum trustees last night and poured a jar full of roaches onto the table. Uh, the demonstrators, members of the Action Committee of the Art Workers Coalition, that sounds like a pompous crowd, contended that the trustees showed contempt for the public by closing off the museum's Louis XVI room to hold their dinner there. Well, I felt that they were certainly being contemptuous of me, closing off the Louis XVI room, which I consider one of my favorite rooms. I often go there and stand around Louis XVI's wonderful dinner platters there and pick my teeth. As museum director Thomas Holving and others startled dinner guests looked on, some swatting the cockroaches with their napkins, guards hustled the angry artists from the room. One demonstrator was wrestled the floor in a corridor outside, but there were no arrests, no injuries. The museum alarm system sounded, and the heavy gold doors of the main entrance were shut and locked. Some visitors thought a theft was in progress, but instead 12,000 new cockroaches were added to the already burgeoning colony in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The demonstrators were escorted to the personnel office, where museum secretary Ashton Hawkins told them he felt that, quote, you have violated the rules of the game. I am all for having dialogue and even confrontation, but not this sort of thing. And uh, we'd just like to point out now that there's a lot of uh, freelance cockroaches who have left various tenements on the Lower East Side and are suddenly now in the Louis XVI the room. If I know anything about cockroaches, they have quickly adapted, and they are now speaking with a heavy French accent and are hollering occasionally off with their heads. I mean, you know, you never... <laughs> oh, man. Do you mind if I do a little cockroach thing here tonight? Are you curious? Do you know anything about Archie? Archie and Mehitable Well, this is a great uh, piece of work by Don Marquis, as the... a fate would have it, but he never called it that. He always called it Don Marquis, being not from France, but from the Midwest. And uh, he wrote a series of uh, little poems called The Life and Times of Archie and Mehitable which appeared in local New York papers. What better city to have the reportings of the world of the cockroach be popularized. And uh, for those of you who are cockroach fans, I want to give you some random thoughts here from Archie. Well, boss? Hmm. Yes. Oh, boy, that's a terrible one. Uh, Are you curious what Archie said about immortality? What What a cockroach said about immortality? Give me a little cockroach music. They're quiet in the background. A little ribald music. Yes, that's cockroach music. Boss, I was up in Central Park yesterday watching some kids build a snowman when they were done and had gone away. I looked it over, and they had used two little chunks of wood for the eyes. I sat on one of these and stared at the bystanders. Along came a prudish-looking lady from Flatbush. She stopped and regarded the snowman... I stood up on my hind legs, in the eye socket, and waved myself at her. Horrors! she cried. "'Even the snowmen in Manhattan are immoral. "'Officer, arrest that statue!' "'It winked at me.' "'Madam,' said the cop, "'accept the tribute as a Christmas present and be happy. "'My own belief is that some people have immortality, "'or immorality, as I put it, on the brain.' And they wish that some immorality would happen to them. Signed, Archie. (laughs) You know, I do think that's true. I think one of the reasons people are against all immoral acts is because they've never been invited. We'll let that soak out there. Are you uh, curious what Archie said one time about becoming a lowbrow? Okay. I, I have a lot of friends who are lowbrows. Boss, I saw a picture of myself in a paper the other day writing on a typewriter with some of my feet. I wished it was as easy as that. What I have to do is dive at each machine, as each key on the machine, and bump it with my head. And sometimes it telescopes my occupant into my vertebrae and I have a permanent callus on my forehead. I am in fact becoming a lowbrow. Think of it, me with all my learning, to become a lowbrow hoping that you will remain the same. I am as ever your faithful little bug, Archie. <laughs> hey, are there any real lowbrows out there tonight listening to me? Uh, I, you know, I... I uh, you know, there's a lot of things about the lowbrow world. For example... Uh, I think uh, some of you might remember a show we did a couple of weeks ago about the new popularity of vulgarity. Did you hear that show? I don't think you heard that show. It was on a Saturday night, a tour of 42nd Street. It was the renaissance of vulgarity, which is a characteristic, by the way, of the savage barbaric world of Attila the Hun, who was the first major barbarian to make it big, the first major slob to go all the way. And, uh, oh, that reminds me, this is WOR. We're in New York. And uh, for those of you who keep pestering me as to when my various pieces are going to appear in the magazines and so on, I have a piece in the current Car and Driver, uh, which is a magazine suitable for men, women, and children and little kids. Uh, (laughs) It's in the February issue of Car and Driver. Rush, do not stumble, do not walk to your newsstand, but rush to your newsstand. Which reminds me, speaking of rushing, will you give me a little echo chamber here, please, Herbert? No, I think I'll call it off there. I don't want to scare any old ladies at this hour. Oh, come on, give me a little echo chamber. I'll do it anyway. That is the reaction of a typical person who has missed out on buying a ticket to Shepard's Unbelievable Performance, which will be held February thirteenth, 1971, Saturday at 8 p.m. in Alexander Hall in Princeton, New Jersey. We repeat, we have this on tape, so for those of you who wish to have a copy of it, can keep it for your archives. It's a terrible sound. You don't want to add your sound, your cry of total, total despair to that rising chorus of those who have missed out. So... If you would like to come to our big show, which is going to be held in Alexander Hall in Princeton University, February the 13th. And wait a minute, the 13th. That just hit me. Yeah, I know. That just hit me. Isn't that the day before? What is the 14th? Isn't that some kind of a holiday? What holiday is that? Well, we know that the 12th is a holiday, but isn't the 14th a holiday? I know that... uh, that the 12th is Columbus's birthday, the 12th of February. But uh, what is the 14th? It seems to me that the 14th is a birthday. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's right. It's Groundhog Day, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be the 13th of February, Saturday. That's Saturday p.m. at 8 o'clock in Princeton, New Jersey, the heart of cultural activity in America. And, uh, for, if for those of you who would like to pick up a ticket quick, they're on sale at the Princeton University Store, 36 University Place in Princeton, New Jersey, of course, idiot. And, uh, if you'd like to order tickets by mail, you still have time to do it. Send your letter addressed to Shep, S-H-E-P. That's a code. I don't know who that is, but it's a Shep, S-H-E-P, box 342. I'll repeat that for those of you that are slow learners. Box 342. I've learned that the radio audience has, a, uh, has an attention span of less than six and a half microseconds now. About the same attention span as the average horsefly. I repeat, Box 342, Princeton, New Jersey, zip code 08540. Enclose a stamped self-addressed envelope and make the checks payable not to Shep. But WPRB. W P is in Pittsburgh. R is in radio. B is in Bologna. WPRB, which is the magnificent uh, radio station there in Princeton, New Jersey, for which that's you know, the college station for which we are doing this little episode. And also appearing with us our cohorts in crime, the Spring Street Jug Band. And if you know anything about Spring Street, you're going to stay way far away from that crowd. That's uh, <laughs> the 13th. Uh, let's say, Oh, yeah. All seats are three bananas, three bucks. And they're all on reserve. General admission. So first come, serve, first served. You know, uh, it's funny. Uh, that, that scene with the guys coming in there and throwing the cockroaches all over Thomas Hoving. Are you aware that Thomas Hoving is a listener? If he's listening tonight, Hoving, well... Yeah, he did. And I'll tell you about Hoving, uh, how how I found this out. One night I was on a platform with Hoving, and uh, I rarely find myself rubbing elbows with the beautiful people on that close proximity. And uh, he's one of the beautiful ones, you know, Plimpton and that whole crowd. And so I'm sitting up there at this uh, shoddy 10th-rate hotel downtown someplace, and I can't even remember the occasion, some... uh, some silly occasion. We were, I think it was some kind of a benefit for uh, out-of-work indigent pornographic photographer league or something that we were uh, thumping the tub for to raise some money or something. And I'm sitting up on the platform. You go to so many of these things, you know, and ultimately you don't even know what the devil kind of a a campaign you're behind. And so uh, next to me is sitting this tall, skinny guy, and he prods me in the elbow. He says, pass the celery." I said, Okay, hold it, Jack, will you? I said, I'll pass the celery if you pass the black olives. And he said, Okay, and so he passed the olives over, I gave him the celery. There's another pause and he says, How about that sh- how about that salt, you fool? And I said, Well, all right, why did not you ask? And so I gave him the salt. Now, have you ever wondered what goes on at the at the head table? Well, this is exactly what happened. So we're sitting there for a while and he says, This bread is stale. I said, I always bring my own whenever I go to these things. So I reached into my pocket and I brought out this slice of bread I always carry with me, see, for emergencies. You see, you go to a lot of these, huh? You're a real freeloader. I says, come on, don't give me that, Jack. You look like a freeloader. Look at that wrist action you got on the London broiler. You got four and a half pounds of London broil on your plate there. And that, that thing went past you just once. I said, don't give me that. And then we're eating away. This is exactly what happened. And finally I turned to him, I just had, I said, hey, what is this thing we're at here? She said, you don't know? I said, no. She said, I was going to ask you. So we both stared forward, and then some large fat lady with a broad bottom got up, and she tapped politely on the podium. And she started to talk. You know, the typical talk. Is said, I want to welcome the Association of Indigent Pornographic Film tonight to the Hotel Clamstraw, and that we are certainly pleased and honored to welcome our guests here in our campaign to raise the cinematographers of the pornographic art film to the proper place that they should have in our society. And I turn to him and I says, uh-oh. And I says, maybe we better crawl into the table and out the back door. He says, it's too late. He says, they already took two pictures of us. They're going to be in the post tomorrow. Forget it. I could see this was a veteran. I and mean, this was a veteran fundraiser. because He's had a look, you know, the fundraiser. A fundraiser is a special look. He knows when to pass up the mashed potatoes and when to haul, you know, call out for more uh, cream chicken. He's just got the look. And he says, hey, uh, don't I know you? Didn't I see you at the... Uh, the Peruvian Orphans Fund meeting here last week. I said, "Yeah, wait a minute. No, it was a, it was the uh, it was the uh, no for crying out loud it was the Sisters of the Storm meeting. Uh, they were raising money to buy eyeglasses for the Mexicans." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, that's right." And uh, he said, "You're uh, you're uh, Norman Mailer, right?" I said, "No, no, no, no. Wait a minute. Let me guess. You're uh Pfeiffer. No, no, you're not Pfeiffer. I know Pfeiffer. He's uh, skinnier and he's got a bump on his nose. You're, uh. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. You're. No, no, you're not Gloria Steinem. I know Gloria. She's got a She's got a bigger mustache. You're, uh. Oh, yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue. He says, I'll give you a clue. It starts with T.H. I says, T.H., you're not Ted Husing, are you? He says, You're close. He says, Let me guess who you are. I said, All right, I'll, I'll, uh. I said, Do you remember the Cigar Rollers Convention last year? We were raising money for out-of-work cigar rollers of Cuban extraction, the Fair Play for Cigar Rollers Committee, right? Said, of course, Shepard. I says, "You're Hovey. He says, "That's right." We sat and we stayed. This is a dull story, but a true one. <laughs> You're hearing the true story. Of what happens at the head table, I said. What are you gonna say? He said. How should I know? I said. Well, I'm going to pull out my standard speech number six. And he said. What's that one? Well, that's the one I. I, I says. Well, and what I actually do is say that uh, that at the last minute, I had uh, canceled some previous very important plans when I realized the plight of the. What's this outfit? He says. The International Association of Indigent Pornographic Photographers. Cinematique vision. I said, You mean these guys make dirty movies? He said, They're not dirty movies, it's art. I said, Oh. I said, well, What makes the difference between dirty movies and one that's art? He says, If it's, in, if it's got sweetie subtitles, it's art. If it was filmed in Brooklyn and there's a star called Will in it, it's dirty movies. I said, Oh, I see. And that's the way the evening went. <laughs> So uh, I know uh, Mr. Hoving, and I kind of like the idea that he, he would have appreciated the cockroaches. But uh, we have a news note here that was published in a, in a paper. A kid sent me this letter, and I just had to bring it out. It's just important. It says, Shepard, I ran across this article in a paper in an old bookstore. I thought I'd send it along to you. I took it out of a paper called The Youth's Companion, published on September 2, 1897. It was printed by Perry Mason and Company published in Boston, Massachusetts. So I had to have it copied because the paper is very fragile, and I had it copied in sections. He said, the papers were so old it wouldn't copy good. Typical uh, high school student using typical Jersey language. And uh, here is the, here's the article. It's a kind of funny article. He said, it was on the first Monday in June, 1638, that the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company was organized... The privilege of using the public arms was granted them. Mr. Keene, one of the Boston prominent merchants of the time, was elected captain. A description of an early parade of this famous artillery company is taken from Mr. Pinion's diary. Quote, Last third day, being ye field day of ye military company, there was a great parade. Ye soldiers assembled betimes at ye great oak, an enormous white oak standing near the present junction of school and Tremont streets. Two lusty drummers and a mighty trumpeter made ye whole town ring with alarms of war. Ye comical turn about ye Jews' harps. Captain Kane would not have mention on pain of his anger. Says the story of the Jews' harps runs as follows. Captain Kane was amazed at seeing 40 young Indian braves attach themselves without permission to the rear of the procession, each playing lustily on a Jews' harp. The soldiers were much amazed and laughed heartily at the comical sight, but the captain chose to regard the Indians' performance as an insult and determined to punish them on the spot. Captain Keene ordered a halt and gave the command to charge upon the unwelcome Jews' harp-playing recruits. Suiting the act to the word, the men rushed at the Indians with drawn swords. The redskins fled like sheep over stone walls, through mud holes, and every shortcut known to the woods. They threw their offending Jews' harps right and left to hide the evidence of their malfeasance. The soldiers gathered them up as souvenirs. Captain Keene recognized the harps as coming from his store and assumed that a raid had been made in the stock, and the man left in charge had been killed. Leaving his lieutenant in command, he hastened to his store to find out whether they had stolen all his Jews' harps. There he found Sunny Wave, a bright Indian maid, a chief's daughter who often came to the store and was allowed many privileges. <laughs> She was overwhelmed uh, with dismay at the captain's displeasure. The store had been left in her care while the men went in to witness the parade. Thinking to please her good friend, Captain Keene, she had persuaded the Indians to join the procession and had given them the Jews' harps and enjoined them, quote, in Indian, she said, play hard. The poor girl said, I I meant for all nothing but good. I hope I have done no wickets. I pay for Jews' harps. So genuine was her contrition that the captain's anger against her was disarmed. But the Jews' Heart parade was a topic that the company did not care to discuss any longer in the presence of their company. Now, that's the kind of racy stuff that appeared in a boy's American youth companion in 1897. <laughs> but uh, you can see right from the very beginning, I, the only reason I put this out tonight was right from the very beginning, people who played Jews harps who had been persecuted. Had they come out playing bugles or cornets, I'm sure that the captain would only have made a request, and they would probably have played Semper Fidelis. But the Jews harp has never been liked or enjoyed by people of dull sensibility. And um, I would like tonight your permission to play the Jews harp. I, I appear tonight humbly... Don't give me such a dull look, Lee. I'm just simply asking for permission tonight for a change. People have been yelling for a long time that I keep doing this stuff bullheadedly. I'm still thinking about that guy that's proposed that tax on rolling in the hay <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you know it's actually up before the uh, before the uh, before the legislature, and so uh, I remember the first time... I got a letter from a kid today. He said to me, Shepard, would you please tell me how you first started to play the Jews' harp? How you began on this illustrious career which you have carved out, a niche uh, in the uh, body politic and in the uh, society that we now know is a barbarous society. Well, I don't know whether it's barbarous or not, kid. It depends on how you define it. Uh, I mean, I suppose you can say... That the people who are Merv Griffin fans have certain things to uh, to beg uh, uh, for and to ask for. But when I first started to play the Jews' harp, I'll tell you how it happened. I got a Jews' harp given to me in a box of junk that my Uncle Tom was going to throw out. And he had all kinds of stuff in this box of junk and I happened to be over at the house that day where he lived, and he was cleaning out the basement. And he said, if there's any junk in this box that you want, you can have it. Well, I'm, you know, a kid, and I love junk. And this is a male thing. I don't think girls love junk. Do they, Herb? I love junk. Boy, I love junk. You know that, that one of the, my, my prize pieces of junk, which I owned for years in which somewhere along the line my mother or somebody threw out, and I've never forgotten them for it. Do you know that I at one time had a joystick? A joystick. You know what is it, a joystick? The control stick from a monocoop. Did you ever hear of an airplane called the monocoop? Well, I got that joystick. I traded a kid at my scout troop something that I had and if you're curious what it was it was a single button carbon microphone which my father had sent in to Popular Mechanics you know in the back it always said amaze and mystify your friends make your own radio announcements you saw those ads you can get this microphone and you attach it to your radio and you hide behind the curtains and then when your friends come over and you know they're listening to the radio you press this button and say hello this is police we're looking for Charles Warnatty Air over and out, you know, that kind of humor. Well, the old man got one of these. He sent it to Popular Mechanics. It cost him $1.79, and he got it. It came from Omaha, and uh, it came in a box, and he was all excited. It had a diagram in it, and it told how you connect the two cords, you know, the two, two uh, leads. You connect one to the grid and one to the plate, and the third lead you were supposed to connect to the ground. Well, my, my old man sat there for about 20 minutes trying to figure out whether the diagram was viewed from the bottom of the tube socket or from the top of the tube socket. He did not know the difference from the grid and the plate, except that he knew that they had to connect it to one and the other. See, it's a G and P next to it. And for those of you who are technical-minded, realize there is a vast amount of potential difference between attaching something to the plate and something to the grid. Do you agree, Herbert? Well, the old man hooked it up, to his E.H. Scott DX-10. And uh, it's had little spade lugs on it, if I can use the expression. And uh, he hooked it up. He turned up the A.C. He went into the... We had this kind of a bedroom, a special bedroom off to one side, which my mother used to grow plant aphids. And uh, she had ferns in there. So he hides behind the ferns, and he says, listen. He said, we'll surprise your mother when she comes in. She was off at the store, and he's hiding behind the ferns with his microphone. She comes up the front steps, opens the door, and the radio is playing. With that, the old man presses the button. It had a press, it had a button, a a thumb button on the back of it, so he says, press, to talk. He pressed the button, and there was a momentary pause. I don't know how long it takes for the electron molecules that are contained in, say, 600 volts of DC, which was on the, on the 45 tubes of that thing. I don't know how long it takes for the molecules to ionize the marrow of a man's bones. But all I know is that there was a brief pregnant pause. There was a sudden scream and it was a puff of smoke and a big blue-purple cloud that rose up from behind the appliance. And the old man's radio career was at an end. I also blew all his... Fingernails off, just like that. And it's true that uh, that the ad was right. It did surprise and mystify everyone, especially since the old man also lost the fillings out of his teeth. It blew his upper plate across the room and, in general, raised hell. Killed all the plant aphids, too, but it was a great way to get rid of the aphids and the, f- killed the ferns, too. But it was an exciting moment. Well, I inherited the microphone since the old man wouldn't go anywhere within 20 feet of it after that. Nice to sit in my bedroom and play around with it. And I finally hooked it up, and what really got him mad, got it working. I got it working. Well, I quickly tired of saying things into the radio like, "Brother is a fake. That kind of got boring. And so one night at uh, the Boy Scout 41, Troop 41, Moose Patrol, me and this kid traded off. I got a joystick for a monocoop for my microphone. He didn't realize of course that the diagram was wrong that he's probably going to get ionized. And so I had this monocoop joystick it's somewhere gone. And I've always regretted it. Anything in your life that you've regretted that you've lost? That you look back on with curses? No, I'm serious. I mean I'm not talking about your lost innocence and your identity and all that cosmic jazz. I'm talking about real stuff. <laughs> All right, we're going to get a report from the front office. Yes, madam. Oh, well, that's something else. That's a personal problem. You didn't lose that. That was stolen. I'm not talking about stolen stuff. No, I'm talking about stuff that just suddenly disappears from your life because you lost it. I had a terrible experience like that in the Army once. And uh, it was a very strange experience. I'm standing in Red Bank, New Jersey. I'm in the employee of the government, the armed forces of the United States. Now, you don't get many good things happen to you when you're in the army. I mean, little things once in a while, like you get two slices of French toast when you only expected one. Uh, you know, you begin to you begin to live on very moment-to-moment, day-by-day, humble little pleasures. And uh, I'm standing in the dark all by myself on a street corner in Red Bank. I don't think I ever mentioned A fact, I know I didn't mention. You listen to this for a minute, Lee. You can shake the cobwebs out of your head. Listen to this for a second. Did I ever tell you that one night, coming home from a terrible, rotten day, out on some uh, abysmal detail, I was in a casual company at Fort Monmouth, and I was so unhappy, so miserable, so cold and rotten and stinking, and I came home, I came home, ha <laughs> came home to the casual company. I came down this, this company street with a pack on my back and a, and a bayonet hanging from my belt and a canteen slapping my hip and a cartridge belt. And by the way, you could never get me to buy a cartridge belt to wear. I mean, if that isn't a kooky thing. Isn't it interesting that most of the people buying cartridge belts also have peace buttons on? That's a fascinating uh, example <laughs> of, of uh, the contradiction of life. But uh, nevertheless, we came, we came down in, in, uh, in route step. Do you know what it is it, route step, any of you? Well, that, most people don't know the various commands. They know right face. They know left face. They know about face. But route step is a, is a very warm command in the Army. So when you hear a guy holler, Forward! Route step! Harch! That means you just Shuffle no no business of, of being in step or anything, and we are coming back from this terrible detail. And we arrive in front of the uh, supply room, and we're all carrying picks. I don't recall what obscene detail we were on, but it involved picks and shovels, so you can imagine what it was like. a Cold, miserable New Jersey night. We arrive in front of the orderly room, or the supply room, and this duty corporal who was in charge of our detail... I you guys, fall out, fall out. You're dismissed, forget it. It was just that kind of a shiftless company that had no discipline, nothing. And I went drifting towards the barracks after turning in my shovel. And I walked past the bulletin board. And there was a sheet on the bulletin board that said, attention. Any... G.I. in a casual company who wishes to be excused from any details and also earn some spare spending money is hereby authorized by the company commander, the battalion commander and God to take a job in the following plants in the New Jersey area after your regular duty tour of the day is over. In other words, you could get a job. You could moonlight at night. Did you ever hear that? Well, I took a look at the list of plants, and one of them was Bendix Electric. And so I went down to the orderly room, and I said, how about them jobs at Bendix? And the corporal looks up and says, Do you know how to use a soldering iron, Mac? <laughs> I said, Do I know how to use a soldering iron? <laughs> you see this thumb? As you see the bone sticking right out of it? That's from burning my thumb off at the end of a side. Sol- I was using a soldering iron before I even got stopped using a teething ring, friend. I was born with a soldering iron in one hand, with a roll of rosin solder in the other hand, and, uh, and a squint from the smoke. He said, okay, put your name down here, Mac, and if they want to hire you, I'll let you know tomorrow. At the... I'll let you know at Reveille tomorrow. The next morning, I had been informed, that along with seven other guys, we have been hired by Bendix. And so, that day, I went off and did whatever obscenity I had to perform, like uh, going to wire knot-tying schools, some insanity like that. And I rushed back from the school at uh, five o'clock at night, changed into my ODs, and by seven o'clock after Chow was on my way to the center of Red Bank, New Jersey, to the Bendix Corporation. It was civilian life. I couldn't believe it. And we all all lined up in front of this personnel department, and he asked us questions. He took our names, and he wrote our stuff down, and uh, he assigned me to a job. And that night, it was just it was just like a dream. It was unbelievable. You know, you heard all these ladies working in defense plants and that. I was at a whole table. It must have been 25 ladies, girls, beautiful, fantastic checks. I was the only male at the whole table running continuity checks on armatures of little Bendix electric motors. And all I did was give me this... Ohm meter, and all I had to do was check the armatures to make sure that there were no shorts in it. See, each one, I'd come along, and I'd check, them. I'd put a little tag on it, and I'd sign it, see? And all these women are around me. And it was... I was a G.I., and, and here I was surrounded by these chicks. It was just like, you know, some kind of a strange movie. And so we had coffee breaks. It was the first time I actually had a coffee break. It was in their contract, and I went down. This was the first night. I went down, and I... It was just like a like a like some kind of a great uh, well some kind of a great fantasy, and I was getting paid like something like two twenty an hour, some ridiculous salary, but it was civilian, true civilian life. And I went off on the coffee break and was sitting down in this little place they had where you had a coffee machine. Is there still a Bendix plant in New Jersey in in Red Bank? I don't know. I ought to go and see the old outfit. <laughs> Because of what happened that night. I'm sitting, uh, having coffee and donuts. When this big, tough-looking lady comes down, and she says to the girl, she says, Now, look, we're having a strike vote tonight. She says, Any of you, any of you have any objections to making the vote tonight? Just let me know. But we're having a vote tonight. And I said, What? Strike vote, what about? She said, You mean you haven't been briefed? What do you mean? Do you work in this department? I says, Yes, I work in the armature department. And uh, this is my first night. I've been there three hours, see. She said, we're having a strike vote. I said, what about? She said, what do you mean? What what life do you have to work if you don't even know what we're striking about? I said, okay, I'll strike. Put me down. (laughs) I'll strike. And she says, you're going to strike. All right, that's one vote. She says, any of you got any objections to to, to taking the vote tonight? I said to this girl who I was, you know, I was kind of making up to this chick next to me, the big blonde chick with a fantastic body. See, I said, hey, what's this all about, Sophie? And she says, she's the shop steward. She says, we're striking because of, uh, of bad working conditions. I said, what do you mean bad working conditions? She said, well, you know, just bad working conditions. I said, what bad working conditions? She said, I don't know. We're just having a strike about them. She said, they'll tell us at the meeting. I said, well, you don't know what the bad working conditions. We're having a strike. They'll tell you at the meeting what they are, huh? She says, don't worry about it. you both, are it's okay. We're going to get more money, too. So it's okay, I vote. So everybody voted. And the next night, the plant was closed up. A strike. And it said the workers voted 90% for the strike. And it listed, you know, all the different departments that went out. That was the last night I worked at the Bendix Company. <laughs> I worked there long enough to strike. Well, so this kind, of, this kind of moment-by-moment existence, as you reach for little things, little rings of, of, uh, of meaning and time... You see to yourself, ultimately, that meaning and time have reason only for themselves to exist. There is no other reason for meaning and time to exist. And you go spinning round and round and round, sitting on a wooden horse with a gold-painted saddle with two green eyes, bobbing up and down, spinning round and round and round, and you discover too late that there's no brass ring at all on this merry ground. It's a plastic ring. And what's worse, it doesn't even make a good teething ring. It's bad plastic. So you decide what I better do is go for the ride. The hell with the gas rings. Up and down you go. Round and round and round. Trying to make some sense of it. So tonight we're going to do the John K. Galbraith Waltz. For all of you. And at the Mammoth Pipe Organ is William Buckley. And operating the cymbals is Gore Vidal. And on the, uh, on the tremulo trumpet is, uh, Norman Mailer. You hear those wooden blocks? Wonder who that is? Curious? That's Gloria Steinem herself. And so you go round and round. Round and round and round. Singing at the top of your voice. And then, without any explanation, burst into a quick blast of sobs. And then you swing round and round. There are people, of course, who prefer to ride in the wooden swans. Then there are those who prefer to ride in the tiny wooden uh, fire engines. But for me, I'm strictly a traditionalist, just the whole wooden horse. Thank you. <laughs> it was a sinister little show, wasn't it, gang? Thomas Hoving Cockroaches Tamaria Steinem The strike at the Bendix plant The moment of realization And then the moment of sudden closing of the aperture of the shutter By the way, any of you who are curious about uh, film speed and shutter information on the program as you saw tonight we'd be glad to send you all the technical information We would like to uh, thank our our production advisor. Uh, We've been choreographed tonight by Jerome Robbins. I'd like to thank him. We'd like to thank Mr. Kenneth, who did the Wafiers tonight. We would also like to thank uh, Jean Petit, who did the costuming for tonight's program. It, of course, was colored, technicolor by Natalie Kelmus. Hmm.